0: Uh, Luke 5, verses 27 through 32, Jesus calls Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at, t- at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you, Davey. And kids, you can go ahead and head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Let me pray for us before we look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time to come and to worship We thank you for this time, especially for how you speak to us through your word. Lord, we'd ask that your spirit would be with us to open our our eyes, to see what you have for us in this text, to open our hearts, that we would apply it to the areas of our lives in which it needs to be applied. And we would ask, Lord, for your help, that you would come to be our teacher here. Lord, that we would find ourselves rooted and built up in Christ as we look at this gospel. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Andrew introduced the sermon series that we're going to be starting today, Meals with Jesus. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel and particular scenes within Luke's gospel that depict Jesus eating and drinking with others. So in light of this new sermon series, let me give you a scenario. You decide to throw a dinner party, and you're going to invite a few of your friends over for supper. And you might invite a few folks from church, a friend or two from work, maybe an acquaintance you have from the gym or another social group or club that you're a part of, you're thinking about inviting your neighbor from down the street, maybe you'll even invite some some old friends who knew you way back in the day. All of these folks are going to come from all different spheres in which you live and operate, and they're going to be together in the same place at the same time. For some of you, I probably just described one of your worst nightmares. As these worlds collide in your home for one monumental evening around a table. But I imagine for a lot of us, we, we like to keep things a little bit more self-contained. If we're going to have a dinner party, we're probably going to be a little bit more thoughtful about the guest list than what I've described to just ensure that the evening goes swimmingly. After all, there's no telling what might happen if we bring folks from different worlds, different walks of life together to share a meal. But that's an interesting thought. What might happen? What might happen if we were so bold to do such a thing? To bring people from all different walks of life, all different spheres together for a meal? Our passage this morning in Luke, it's going to help us to think about this a little bit. Because in Luke 5, we have a worlds collide scenario. And where else does it happen but at a dinner party? On one side, we have the religious purists, the Pharisees and their scribes. And on the other side, we have, well, not the religious purists. Not at all. We might even say that these two groups are as far away from each other as two groups of people could get luke calls them the tax collectors and the others but the pharisees who were present might have just called them scum the low lives or simply just sinners and who do we find at the guest as the guest of honor at this party it's none other than jesus right worlds collide around jesus in this passage And as we'll see, there's going to be some friction as these groups come together. There's friction at this party. The mixed company is not appreciated by everyone. But as Jesus himself is going to show, he's intentional with every single move that he makes in this passage, and we're going to see why. So here's our sermon in a sentence as we dive into the gospel this morning. It's an easy, easy sermon in a sentence to remember. Jesus shows grace to sinners. Jesus shows grace to sinners. And he shows grace to sinners in three ways in this passage. He shows grace to sinners by pursuing sinners. He shows grace to sinners by fellowshipping with sinners. And he shows grace to sinners in his mission to sinners. So we'll dive in here. Jesus shows grace to sinners by pursuing them. So we'll look again at Luke 5, verses 27 and 28. After this, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Luke starts this section of his gospel with the words, after this. So we might ask, well, what is the this? What has Jesus been doing leading up to this meeting with Levi at his tax booth? We look back in chapters 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, We see that Jesus has been busy, 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 and he's performed this string of miracles through this section. In chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, he heals a man with an unclean demon. After that, we see him heal Peter's mother along with with some others. In the beginning of chapter 5, he produces the greatest catch of fish that Peter and his fishing buddies had ever seen. Jesus goes on to heal a man of leprosy. He restores a paralyzed man back to full health. Jesus has been up to some extraordinary things before this seemingly ordinary meeting with Levi at the tax booth. If we compare other gospel accounts, we know that this Levi is also Jesus' disciple, Matthew. We know that because he tells us that himself in his gospel in chapter 9. But We should know something about Levi's occupation. Tax collecting was a pretty lucrative profession. He could make a pretty good living for himself, but it was not a very celebrated profession in Jesus's day. So I want you to to think back with me when you were young. Did you have a moment where a parent or a grandparent or maybe a beloved teacher sat you down and said to you, you can be whatever you want to be? Work hard, put your mind to it. You You could be whatever you want. The sky's the limit for you. And maybe your dream was to, to be a doctor or a teacher. You wanted to be a rock star or a professional athlete. I know for my kids, Penelope, she wants to be a veterinarian. She loves animals, she wants to take care of animals. And Jasper, he wants to be Spider-Man. <laughs> we haven't broken it to him that that might, not be, that might not work out for him, but that's where he's at right now. But let me tell you, in Jesus' day, no one was encouraging their kids to be a tax collector. Right. Tax collectors would have been Jewish folks who were employed by the Roman government, and they were given the job of collecting taxes for Rome. They were, they were taking the money from their neighbors. And so this position gave guys like Levi plenty of opportunities to, to take advantage of the system, inflate the tax a little bit, take a cut off the top. They can make a pretty comfortable living for themselves, albeit while stepping on their neighbors. Here's the short of it. Was Levi uh, probably a respected man in his community? Probably not. Uh, More likely, people probably avoided him like the plague or downright hated him. But we see Jesus pursue this man. Jesus comes after this man. And what Luke tells us is that Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him in the tax booth. And we might think, well, yeah, so what? Of course Jesus saw him. He's not walking down the road with his eyes closed. Of course he saw him sitting in the tax booth. But it is interesting to think about the word that Luke does use for when he says Jesus saw him, because it's not the the word that we would think. It's not the word that Matthew himself nor Mark uses when they tell about this encounter in their Gospels. The word "see" that Luke uses carries with it this idea of intent or, or purpose, almost as if Jesus was staring straight into the heart of the real Levi, that he saw the real person that was underneath the tax collector veil. Mike Emlett is an author and uh, the dean of faculty for the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. And in a recent article, he, he asked some really helpful questions for reflection. He asks. Who really knows you well? Who really knows you well? Not just the basic contours of your life story, but someone who knows your joys and your sorrows, your fears and your triumphs, your doubts and your failures. Who, who really knows you well? Somebody who you feel comfortable sharing your deepest thoughts and feelings, trusting that they'll accept you and love you for what you tell them. Who knows you really well? Emily goes on in his article to point out that that list of people who know us really well is probably pretty short. Some of us here might even feel like we don't really have anybody that we can be that vulnerable with. Some of us here might not want anyone around us who tries to get that close to us. The thought of that level of intimacy is scary to us. But do we see that Jesus is such a person? Jesus, who created us for himself, knows you beyond the basic contours of your life story. That he knows your joys and your sorrows and your fears, your triumphs and your doubts. He sees your failures. He sees you at your best and he sees you at your worst. We can't hide anything from him. And this Jesus who saw Levi, the real Levi, and drew near to him, this avoided, detestable sinner, should we not also believe that the Jesus who sees us, who sees our sin, desires to draw near to us too? When we see Jesus pursue people in the Gospels, he doesn't do it with indifference. Right? He doesn't come saying, I'm just letting you know I'm here. If you need me, I'll be over here in the corner. Just let me know if you need some help. That's not how he comes. He comes to sinners that they might turn and follow him. He comes to sinners and he makes a call on their lives. And he says, stop, leave what you're doing and follow me. Leslie Newbigin, he was a British theologian, a longtime missionary to India Newbegin tells this story about one trip to India where there was no road to get to the village where he was going. What you had to do is you had to cross a river and you could enter the village either from the south entrance or the, or the north entrance. And the congregation that he was going to see, they decided that, that he would come by the south entrance and they had prepared a huge welcome celebration for him. There was gonna be music and fireworks and garland and food and something called a silumba, which is a a Southern Indian martial art that they do at at special ceremonies. They were pulling out all the stops. Unfortunately, when when Newbegin was was going to the village, he actually entered in at the north end, and all that he found were goats and chickens. And this was a a crisis, so he had to disappear while word was sent to the congregation so that the entire village could perform this U-turn and face the right direction before Newbegin could, could reappear. And that U-turn that Newbegin talks about is what Luke describes here in chapter 5 when Jesus calls Levi to follow him. It's not simply that, that Jesus is telling Levi, stop what you're doing because it's wrong. It's not simply a call for Levi to be a more moral person. What Jesus is saying to Levi is your life is fundamentally pointed in the wrong direction. You're fixed on the wrong things. What you think is God isn't God at all. I want you to look at me. I want you to follow me. And what gives Jesus the right to make such a bold demand on Levi's life? What gives him the right to make such a bold demand on our lives? because he did create us for himself. Our lives rightly belong to him. In the words of Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. So as Luke describes, the call of Christ is that we would completely reorient ourselves that we would fix our eyes on him and follow. And we could ask, well, if this is what Jesus calls me to do, if I am to follow him, what does that actually mean? What is it to follow Jesus? In Luke 5, we do find two cases where Jesus tells people to follow him. Here with Levi in verses 27 to 32, And in the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 11, with Peter and James and John after that miraculous catch of fish that we alluded to earlier. And there are parallels within these stories. In both instances, Jesus tells these men to leave everything behind and to come after him. In each case, we see Jesus assume the leadership role in the relationship. He's the one in charge. If we were to say one thing this morning about what it means to follow Jesus, it means that he's in charge. We don't get to lead. He gets to lead. If we're following, then our eyes are fixed on the leader. We remember the, the children's song. If we follow the leader, that means our eyes are fixed ahead of us where Jesus is. We follow him. We stay close to him. What we see in Jesus' encounter here with Levi is his grace in pursuing sinners and his call that they follow him. And Levi does. Levi drops everything to follow Jesus and now wants his friends to encounter Jesus as well. So Levi holds this feast with Jesus as the guest of honor, and this is where the worlds begin to collide in our passage. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. We see Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we can really only guess at the reasons why Levi decided to throw this dinner party. Perhaps it really was an occasion to get his friends together so that they could encounter Jesus. Perhaps it was a celebration of Levi's new life in Christ, too, as he has followed Jesus, maybe a bit of both. But what we can say for sure is it is very clear that Jesus is the guest of honor here. And he seems very content, perfectly content, to be rubbing shoulders with Levi's friends. But everyone's not okay with what Jesus is up to. The Pharisees and their scribes, they're watching all this take. Place And they are seething as G- Jesus mingled with these low lives, asking his disciples, why do, you, why do you do this? Why do you eat with these people? See, in Jesus' day, table fellowship was important. It meant something more than just filling your bellies. Being welcomed at a table to eat with another person was a powerful sign of friendship and unity between those people that were sharing that meal. And it's clear from the passage that the Pharisees thought Jesus was stepping over a line by offering such friendship to Levi and his guests. Because for, for the Pharisees, this question of who can I eat with, it was more than just a social question. Right? It's not just a matter of preference of I prefer these people over these people. Right? There's, there's a theological question behind this. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi he writes how the Pharisees regarded their tables at home as surrogates for the Lord's altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And therefore, they strove to maintain in their households and among their eating companions a state of ritual purity required of the priest in the temple service. Because the Pharisees, they, they long for a time when all Israel would live in such a state of holiness. They believe that Israel's identity and their future depended on this. And yet here is Jesus, God's Messiah, happily welcoming the unsavory, the riffraff, the sinners to share food around a table. There is a challenge here for us to consider our own partiality. I want to riff for a second on the scenario that we started with this morning. You're having a dinner party, but rather asking who who you're inviting, let's ask, who are you not inviting and why? Who are you not inviting to your dinner party? Maybe that's a group that you're not inviting who has a different lifestyle than you, a lifestyle that you don't agree with. Maybe it's Someone who has a different ethnicity, whose culture you don't understand. Maybe it's somebody with a different political perspective, someone in a different tax bracket, somebody who's older than you, somebody who's younger than you, somebody you don't know, you're not inviting them. Maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's a church member, maybe it's a family member. Who are you not inviting to dinner and why? And what could happen if you did? What could happen if you did invite that person to share a meal? What could happen if two worlds collided over salad and pasta and wine? What could happen if worlds collided over Jesus? What could happen? If you saw Friday's weekly update, you might have noticed we do have a new book of the month To go along with this sermon series, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World by Rosaria Butterfield. If you're not familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, she has an incredible testimony of God's grace. In 1999, Rosaria was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She described herself as a radical lesbian feminist Not exactly someone that you would expect to strike up a friendship with a 70-something-year-old Presbyterian minister and his wife. That's what happened. Ken Smith was the then pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. He wrote Butterfield after reading an article that she had published in a local paper where she was critiquing the Promise Keepers and their gender politics. And in her book, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert, Butterfield describes the letter that she received from Ken. She described it as the kindest letter of opposition that she had ever received. And in that letter was an invitation to talk further. So after a week of Ken's letter sitting on her desk, Rosaria called, and she and Ken talked. And eventually that conversation led to another invitation that Rosaria joined he and his wife, Floyd, for dinner in their home. Reflecting on that first meal with Ken and his wife, Floy, Rosario says this, Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in so many Christian homes. Ken and Floy invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, and to dialogue. Ken and Floy have a vulnerable and transparent faith. We didn't debate worldview, We talked about our personal truth and what made us tick. Ken and Floyd didn't identify with me. They didn't identify with me. They listened to me and they identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they didn't share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, As I had come to know it when the evening ended and pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch I knew it was truly safe to accept his open hand Rosaria goes on to say that this simple meal in a pastor's home the unlikely circle made by a radical lesbian feminist professor and two strong christians in their 70s was the first leg in her journey of faith she said I left the table needing to know several things Does God exist? If God does exist, what does he expect from me? How do I communicate with him? How do I know who he is and what he wants? What if God's dead? Do I have the courage to face the truth either way? This was just the first meeting of many between Rosaria and the Smiths, and it is a testimony of God's grace, a testimony of how the God who fellowships with sinners might use a simple, ordinary meal around an ordinary table to bring unlikely people together and to bring unlikely people to himself. But there's still one thing I think we need to understand before this kind of fellowship can really lock into place. And that's an understanding of Jesus' grace and his mission to sinners. If we don't understand the mission of Jesus, we won't see the point in any of this. So when the Pharisee asks his disciples, why do you eat with these people? Why do you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus is the one who answers in order to make clear why it is that he's come. Verses 31 to 32, we see Jesus answer them and say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't it interesting, if we were to to think back to the the context that we find this passage in, Jesus has just performed a string of miraculous, extraordinary acts. He's done this leading up to this seemingly ordinary moment with Levi and his friends. He's healed the man of, of an unclean demon. He's heals Peter's mother and others. He heals a man of leprosy. He heals a paralyzed man. Isn't it interesting that only now, in this rather ordinary meeting with Levi and his friends at this dinner party, that Jesus parallels himself with a doctor? Almost as if to say that of all of these ailments and all of these illnesses that we could possibly have, that curing the sickness of our soul due to sin is paramount. It is central to Jesus' mission. In response to the Pharisees' question, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they have need. They have need. And I have a cure. I have a cure. It is easy for us to read this story and paint the Pharisees as the bad guys in the story. For us to understand the weight of Jesus' words, we need to see that what the Pharisees were doing, they saw themselves as the good guys. They thought they were right for pursuing holiness, for being concerned about keeping God's law. They believed that this this was part of their whole body worship to the Lord. So the question is not, should we pursue holiness? Yes, we should pursue holiness. The question is not, should we be concerned about obeying the word of God? Yes, we absolutely should be concerned about obeying the word of God. The question is not, should I devote every area of my life to the worship of the Lord? Undoubtedly, yes. The question that Jesus is driving us towards, do you ultimately see yourself as someone in need? Someone who needs and depends upon the grace of God. And as a follow-up, we who have experienced God's grace through the blood of Jesus shed at the cross, do we openly and freely hold that grace out to others who have the same needs that we do, who are sinners just like you and me? Then they might come to understand the radical fellowship of Jesus, this kind of fellowship that the Smith showed Rosaria. quote in your bulletin today, comes from Pastor Kent Hughes. I think his observations are helpful. He writes that it's too easy for Christian believers to forget that they're sinners. Yes, justified, but still in themselves weak and vulnerable. We all stumble in many ways. We sometimes deceive ourselves by thinking the sinners are just out there, not here in the church. Church then becomes this elite club with few on the outside wanting to join even if they could, the radical, regenerating work of Christ sours when redeemed people lose sight of their continuing need, when they forget that though their eternal future is secure, in their daily walk they are frail and needy. The church can easily become a self-righteous subculture with no room for sympathy for sinners. What should we take away from what Jesus says and does in this passage? That we are all sinners in need of God's grace. That there is not one who stands above another at the cross. And that grace has come. Grace has come in Jesus who has paid for our sins with his own precious blood. And who holds out to us forgiveness and friendship with God and eternal life as gifts, as the benefits of life with him. Should we simply turn to him in faith and follow? Jesus, who graciously pursues sinners, fellowships with sinners, whose mission is for sinners, he is the way to salvation. He is the way to life everlasting. He is our greatest joy and our greatest hope. He is the one that we need. Do we see ourselves as sick? Do we see our sin? Do we see our need for Jesus, the great physician to heal us? Are we prepared like Levi to let Jesus lead and follow him in this life of repentance? And would we be so obedient as those who have experienced God's grace to extend the fellowship and the compassion of Jesus to others, to let our worlds collide around a table around a meal, that others might experience the grace of God in Christ as well. Friends, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are the God who came to save sinners, and how in this passage we see that you do not shy away, but you come all in. So Lord, help us now to embrace you, to rest on all that you have accomplished on our behalf at the cross, the benefits that are ours by faith in you. Lord, and help us to extend that invitation of grace to others, that all who you call to yourself would know of your amazing love, that offer of grace that is extended to all sinners. Lord, draw them in, grow your church, expand your kingdom. We pray this in your name, amen.